Well, I'm excited to be here, but also a little sad as today marks the, the last week of our Who Is This Man Called Jesus series. Uh, I look forward to picking up again at some point in the future. But um, this fall, we've been looking at Who Is This Man Called Jesus? We've been looking at his humanity. And we've been seeing uh, how Jesus, as, as this fully human, fully God, uh, came to earth and, and lived his life for us. And as we've looked at how he trained to become the person that he was, we, we've looked at how he cares for the weary and the broken. We've looked at how his life is permeated with a life that is marked by solitude and prayer with the Lord, or with his Father. We've looked at how he reaches out to the lost and how he's laid his life down for others. And that everything that he does, he does through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, right? Completely dependent upon the Father. And we've also looked at how we are then called to live in love like him as a result of that. And we see now that at the end of his life, he is crucified, he's resurrected, and what we're going to talk about today is then he ascends to go back to be with his Father in heaven. And, and today, as we temporarily wrap up the series on who is this man called Jesus, um, I, I want us to look specifically at the ascension and what it means that he is human and how his humanity affects that and how it impacts us today. Now, the ascension of Jesus, that's being where Jesus rises back to be with the Father after resurrecting from the dead, is a central foundational teaching in the history of the church. But it is also something that in the last season of church history has, has kind of been downplayed in much of the evangelical church. And the reason for that, often for its neglect recently, is because we've tended as a church, not here at Northview, but kind of as evangelicalism, to really emphasize in this last season of church history personal salvation kind of over everything else. Right? That Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and now I get to go to heaven because he died on the cross for my sins. And many of us emphasize the fact that Jesus, when he went on the cross, we think that when he says it's finished on the cross, that really his work was done at that point, is the way it's often understood. That Jesus uh, came to pay for our sins so that I can go to heaven. And oftentimes, many people have a very transactional understanding of what Jesus has done. Again, that he's paid for my sins, I get heaven, he's gone back to be with the Father, and now his work is finished. I got my ticket to heaven, I'm good, and Jesus, I'll see you on the other side, right? And as a result of that, many things have kind of, kind of get lost in, in the reality of what Jesus has done. And we recognize that we've heard that, you know, when he goes to heaven, he's interceding for us, and that's awesome. But who he is now, and what he's doing now, and what he looks like now, is really not that, re that relevant for many Christians today, as we live out kind of this transactional relationship for many. But what the ascension actually shows, what we want to talk about this morning, is that when Jesus returns to the Father, his work is just getting started, right? His death, resurrection, and ascension just begins the work of Christ. It's not the finishing of it, but it's just the beginning of it. And it shows most incredibly at all, of all at the ascension that Jesus' humanity doesn't end this side, of the, or this side on, on the earth. He doesn't leave his body in the clouds on his way back up, but he enters humanity for all of eternity. And there's so much that can be talked about in regards to the ascension. But again, I want to focus on this aspect today, as we're in this series, of his humanity into the ascension of its impact upon us today. And so let's look a little bit at what Scripture has to say about his ascension. Now, um, like with the first few messages of this series, if you've been following with us all 10 weeks, I want to jump into a little bit of theology today. And, and I hope not to overwhelm you, but I think it's pretty awesome sometimes to do a little bit of a dive into the deeper end of the theological pool to be able to see a bit what God has to say about this. So today, we're going to unpack a little bit of the impacts of the ascension for us today. And honestly, to me, it's one of the most beautiful messages we have to be able to look at in Scripture. So jump in with me. Let's start looking at the book of Acts. In chapter 1, we're going to see the story, as, as Luke tells it, of Jesus' ascension. So he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, 
I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So after Jesus rises from the dead, he spends about 40 days teaching the disciples specifically about the kingdom of God. Now, that's really no different than what he spent the first three years talking to them about, right? But now he's just affirming it to them, and hopefully they really believe it this time because he's kind of proven who he is by raising from the dead. Okay, then we get to verse 6. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, he says, So when they had come together, they asked him, now that's the disciples, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if you know, you pick up on what's actually happening right here, is it'd be funny if it wasn't so sad, but the disciples, their focus as Jesus is literally getting ready to disappear into the heavens after confirming all that he's done his whole life, their focus is on their worldview of them believing that Jesus has come not for the sake of reconciling the world to him, but for the sake of restoring physical Israel and overtaking Rome. So right before he goes up, the last thing they say to him, so now are you going to go destroy Rome, Jesus? Now is our chance for us to be on your right hand and your left hand as we take out Rome, as we take out Pilate, and we take out all this stuff. Now is your turn to restore Israel, right? And now Jesus doesn't rebuke him. It's amazing, though, that of all that he's done, the disciples, this is their focus. Right at the very end is, okay, so now we get to take charge. Any outside observer watching what's going on right now might look at his merry band of 12 followers completely missing the plot of why he came and think that Jesus' ministry is just like a giant dumpster fire at this point as he's leaving the earth. And the next verse in verse 7, it said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons, Jesus responds, that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He just gently admonishes them and reminds them again that the Holy Spirit will come upon them. The counselor, the helper will be with them to empower them as he goes. And what is the Holy Spirit going to empower them to do? Very specifically, he says, for them to reach out to the lost in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus just starts lifting up into the heavens as they're kind of waiting him, as they're watching, as, as he goes up into the sky, wondering where he's gone. And then as soon as he goes up, they're staring into the sky, confused, wondering what the heck is happening. And then we get to the next verse in verse 10, and it says, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, this is angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So as they're looking into the sky, wondering if Jesus is maybe flying off to Rome to go take out the emperor Tiberius, or if he's flying off to Jerusalem maybe to take out Pilate and the Roman garrison, they're wondering what's happened. Now the angels tell them what's going to happen. Jesus isn't going to Rome or Jerusalem. He's ascending into heaven. And the second thing that the angel tells them is that this Jesus is going to come back in the exact same way that you saw him go, in the body that you saw him go, in the same way he will be coming back to earth when he returns. And so Jesus ascends into heaven in his human body, in the flesh, and Jesus will return in his human body in the flesh. And, what the ch and this is what the church has understood from the very beginning, it's just less emphasized these days, that Jesus didn't unzip his human skin when he goes up and leave it in the clouds on the way to heaven. 
And there's so many references in Scripture that talk about this. I just want to highlight a couple. But for example, in Philippians chapter 3, and verse 20, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Right? Because He still has a fleshly body. Or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Now, this is being written 30, day, 30 years after Jesus died when Paul writes this. And he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Right? That's presently. Jesus is still a man. In fact, just a few hundred years after the death of Jesus, the famous St. Augustine was writing in his book, The City of God, addressing those who doubted in some ways that Jesus was still fully in the flesh. And he writes this in his book, The City of God. He says, It is incredible that Jesus Christ should have risen in the flesh and ascended with flesh into heaven. It is indubitable that the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven with the flesh in which he rose is already preached and believed in the whole world. If it is not credible, how is it that it is all, now it being that he is arisen in the flesh to heaven, already received credence in the whole world? So a couple points here. First, can we not all agree that indubitable is an amazing word that needs a comeback, <laughs> right? I just love that word, right? So that needs to make a comeback. Sorry, Gen Z, not on fleek or, or what is that, no cap or all this other stuff. We need to bring back indubitable. I love that word. But okay, second point though, more importantly, here Augustine is saying that the idea that Jesus is fully human in the flesh, in the ascended, as the ascended Lord at the right hand of God by the year 400, that is the universal teaching of the church. That is orthodoxy, right? So where did Jesus go then? Well, the scriptures tell us he goes to the right hand of God, right? And that's where he, he's sitting. And we'll read Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 1 states this so clearly as well as other places. But we'll just look at this one. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. It says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. So that's where Jesus is at currently. 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God, verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over all things of the church. So Jesus, right now, he is with God with all power and all authority at the right hand of the Father. Okay, so quick recap then. Jesus comes to earth fully human in every way, just like us. And then while on earth, he chooses not to access his divine attributes, right? But he lives the fully human life. That's what we've been talking about this whole series. He then lives a life in complete dependency upon the Father through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And he demonstrates to us the life that God intended for all of humanity to live, right? This is what we've been talking about these past 10 weeks. Then Jesus is willingly crucified. He gives himself up. And after dying, he is resurrected. And he's given his glorified eternal body in the flesh. Then after 40 days of teaching his disciples, he then rises up to be with the Father at the right hand of God, given all rule, all power, all authority, fully in the flesh at the right hand of the Father, right? So here's where we're at now. And this is where it gets a little crazy. Because why does it matter that Jesus is still human? What difference does it make that he maintains his humanity? Why has this been a central teaching of the church throughout history? That humanity now is back in the midst of the Trinity. Why is this so important? Well, when was the last time that humanity was in perfect fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Spirit? In perfect fellowship. When was the last time that happened? Well, we got to go a little ways back. In fact, a long ways back. All the way back to the garden. 
back in the garden where it says that Adam and Eve would walk in the cool of the day with God. They were just chilling with him. Back before the fall, before sin entered the world, where humanity was in this perfect fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the way that God intended for it to be, right? That's the way it was and the way that God intended it to be. But then the fall happened, right? And everything was broken after that. You know, in week one of the series of, uh, that we talked about, all the way back in September, I'm sure you all remember it perfectly, right? We talked about that God is triune and that to be God is to be in relationship and that God created us out of a desire to share with us his fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He created us for the overflow of that, for us to live in that reality with us, right? To be in relationship with us. It's why we exist, because God wants to be with us. That's why he created us. And if you want to go back, go back and listen to week one. I think it was a decent message. Um, but the problem is with Adam and Eve is that they then sinned and they broke that relationship. You know, when we talk about the fall and the consequences of sin, so often the focus of the fall, people talk about death entering the world because, well, that has some pretty obvious implications for us. And that's horrific, obviously. But what's often not spoken so much about is, that is of such great consequence is that our relationship, that intimacy with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the thing we were created for was broken at the fall as well, right? We were removed from that place of deep intimacy and fellowship with God. Our purpose for existing was broken in that point. And yet scripture tells us that Jesus is called the second Adam for a reason. Jesus came not to get, just to get sinners into heaven, but to restore our fellowship to what God intended for humanity. And so what does Jesus do? He becomes one of us. He lives a fully human life. He sacrifices himself for us and pays the penalty for ours in Adam's sin. This man God, fully human and fully God, then rises from the dead, goes back to heaven, sits at the right hand of God, and Jesus does not forsake his humanity or leave it behind, but he takes humanity back with him into the fullness of the presence of God. Jesus, one of us, our brother, is now seated at the right hand of God. Isn't that, I mean, this is amazing. Jesus it brings humanity back into the full presence of God when he ascends to the throne. But the thing is, it doesn't stop there. It just keeps getting better. Because again, God's desire has always been for us to be with him. And so what does Jesus do? John chapter 14 and verse two, Jesus says, and he says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Jesus is bringing us with him because we are in him. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 29. He says, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's us, right? That his brothers and sisters, that we would join him, and his, he's the firstborn, and then we would be born again and join him in his home, in that place. So that we can have comfort that when Jesus returns, we will be fully united in him. That we have a seat, a seat at the table as humans because Jesus, the God-man, is there in himself, and we are there in him. But stick with me, because what I want to say now is even more incredible than that. And I'm going to go a little more into theology, so stick with me in this. I hope it does not, it's not overwhelm or anything, but just a little bit more with this, because Jesus does now the most amazing thing that's talked about in Scripture. Something that will never make fully sense, or fully make sense in our brains today. This side of eternity will never fully understand it, but it doesn't make it any less real, because it's stated over and over again with incredible clarity in Scripture. And that is that 
while we must wait for Christ's return to experience the fullness of that intimacy with him. But Jesus has united us to himself the moment we believe. Right? Let's read how Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, first, he's going to describe their old life before they knew Christ. And he says in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, and that the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all used to live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's saying this is what you were before, you found, before Jesus found you. Now check this out. Keep reading. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, we're never going to be able to fully impact the beauties of the truth of this passage. So, so Paul says here that, that God made us alive together with Jesus by his grace. And the insane truth here in verse 6 is that God raises us up and he seats us with Jesus in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. How? How are we there? Because we are now in Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite phrases to use in his writings is this word, in Christ. That we are now in Christ. We are raised with him, and we are now in Christ. And here's the key thing. When does this happen? Is Paul speaking of the future here, of when we die and when we're resurrected and, and physically go back to be in heaven? And the answer is no. This is not future language. This is past tense language. This has already happened. Paul is saying this is not a future promise of us being in Christ and being raised, but a present reality that this is what Christ has already done. That right now we are in Christ. Physically, we're standing here, but spiritually, we are united in Christ and seated at the right hand of the Father. We are united with Christ. We are in Christ now. Spiritually, again, seated with Him in the center of the Father's presence. Jesus ascends to the Father's side, bringing humanity back into the very presence of God, the way God intended for it to be from the very beginning. He brings us there, and we can be there because He is there, and we are in Him. Paul says it in Colossians this way in chapter 3. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things that are above. Why? Because that's where you are, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Two, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, because you are in Christ. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is your reality. We are in Christ. We've been reunited with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Through Christ's death, his, or his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, we are now in Christ. One with him, and we share in his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. Though we're here on earth, the Holy Spirit makes all of this a reality for us right now. The Holy Spirit makes all of Jesus available to us right here and right now because we are in Christ. And, and so what does this mean for us? Well, Paul says it in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 12, and there's endless implications, but one of them is here. He says, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Oh, I love this passage. 
We no longer need to fear coming before God. We can come with boldness and confidence, with freedom, because we are his children. We are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. I mean, imagine a child who's the friend, uh, or imagine a child who has a friend that is like the son of a president or, or a famous athlete or someone that you would long to spend time with. Like a friend of Russell Wilson's own son, right? And imagine that a child that's friend with Russell Wilson's son and one day invites him over to his house and he comes to his house and he comes to this huge place and he's standing and amazed, oh my goodness, this is the house of Russell Wilson. And the kid opens the door and there is Russell Wilson standing at the door and he's like, hello, Mr. Wilson. And meanwhile, the little kid next to him just runs and jumps into his arms because it's his son. And he picks him up and he throws him around. He's wrestling with him. And this kid's just kind of standing there at the door feeling really awkward, wishing that he could have that kind of relationship with this guy, that, that he could get to know him and have that relationship. But it's special because that's the relationship he has with his son. And so he just stands there kind of awkwardly off to the side, recognizing that he doesn't get to partake in that. And so frequently to me, that's what many, many Christians' relationships with God is like. We address God formally. We don't really recognize all that Jesus has done for us. And then that we're created to be in intimate fellowship with him. To have the same kind of relationship with the, with the father that Jesus had with the father. That's his longing for us. A conversational relationship that permeates every aspect of our lives. God wants us to be with him. Not just a formal visit where we're on our best behavior. It reminds me when I was a kid, and I used to sometimes be forced to go visit my great-grandmother, right? And, and she was a stern and kind of a harsh lady, um, and it's not something I really enjoyed. Sorry, Mom, she knows this. Um, <laughs> but going to visit my great-grandmother was kind of like going to the principal's office, right? It's something that I didn't necessarily want to do. I, 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 didn't, I wasn't relaxed. I didn't really enjoy being there. I, I just kind of looked forward to when it was over. I had no real relationships. It was my parents' relationship with her. And it felt so formal. It, it felt just forced and stuffy. And, and I, I just, it was kind of this thing that I didn't have any interest in being there, but I knew she's family, so we have to go sometimes. And I feel like for many of us, that's kind of how we treat God. This kind of stuffy, formal relationship that we do sometimes, or maybe there's certain moments where we feel better. But the language that's often used in the Bible to describe this, it says that we've been adopted as children. We are now part of his family. Paul says in Romans that we are even co-heirs with Christ. That means we have equal inheritance to God's family as Jesus does. That's how much of a family member we are considered. We've been adopted into his family, that we are now brothers and sisters of Jesus with full access to the Father, that we can run into his arms and be present to him at any point, at any time. Because Jesus has brought us back into fellowship with him. And we are in Christ. And because Christ is there, we are there. Because we are in Christ. We are welcomed at his table. We are true sons and daughters of the king. And we can run right up to him with the same boldness and confidence of a child with a perfectly loving father. The same confidence that Jesus has as he approaches his father. We can have the same confidence as well. In fact, this is what Athanasius was saying in that quote I used. I'm, getting, I'm sure you all remember it back from week one. But uh, this quote that Athanasius used back in the 300s, he said this. He was one of the main guys of the Council of Nicaea. And he said this. For that was the very purpose and end of our Lord's incarnation. That he, Jesus, should join what is man by nature. So join our humanity who is by nature God. That so man might enjoy his salvation and his union with God without any fear of its failing or decrease. So he's saying this is why Jesus became human. So Jesus could join us back to him. 
so we can enjoy not just our salvation, but our union with God. Without having to, it says, without having fear of, or fear of failing or decrease, without having to feel that we're on a roller coaster of our relationship with God, that we forever go up and down, or, or again, that failure decrease based upon our own efforts. But God has declared us his children. And while we were dead in our own sin, as Paul said, again, back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he made us alive. He united us with Jesus so we can be with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That is what God has done for us, bringing us back into fellowship with him. And so we can rejoice in this reality. We can rejoice that we are in Christ, that we are seated with him, not because of our efforts or our lack of sin, but because Jesus is there and we are in Christ. And for some of us today, we need to meditate again on this reality, that we are in Christ and be reminded yet again that God's love for us is not based upon our goodness or our, our badness or how much I sinned this week, but it's based upon his love for us. That as Ephesians said, when, he, when we were dead, he made us alive. And now we can relate to God as a child, as a perfect love, with, a child with a perfect loving father. And we can relate to Jesus as our Lord and our Savior and our brother. And that's amazing that God is knowable. And he longs to be with us more and more. He longs to increasingly permeate every single aspect of our lives through his Holy Spirit. And he longs to be invited into every area of our life every minute of each day. And because of Christ, we now get to live this life that's through the Spirit in the midst of all the most incredible triune fellowship that we can possibly imagine. We are called to live this life with Him. Not just some doctrinal statement that we agree to, but a Spirit-filled life, as Paul calls it. A life of abundance, as Jesus calls it. Through the Holy Spirit, we get to experience more and more of this life in Christ. This is what he's called us to. But as we continue to grow in, in the beauty of our relationship with God, as amazing as that is, we also can make sure we never forget that God's longing isn't just for us to grow in this vertical relationship with him of this reality that we're called to, because didn't, Jesus didn't, just, didn't bring just us back into fellowship with him. But the very centerpiece of all that God did is he's bringing us together as a body back into this place of fellowship with him. That our horizontal relationships with one another, this matters just as much in regards to our faith journey as that we are journeying together with one another. Jesus puts it so beautifully in his final public prayer before he's arrested and crucified. The only place where he's literally praying for us today. And one of my favorite passages in scripture, we're looking again at John 17, our opening reading this morning. In verse 20, Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever, will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they may all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, he says, may they be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. Jesus says, I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one just as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them just as much as you love me. Now, I want to break this down for just a minute as we see what Jesus is praying for here. And first, there's no surprise what Jesus is praying for us. And, and that shouldn't come as a surprise because Jesus' primary role now is our high priest and he's interceding for us. So he's praying for us here. 
And what is the greatest longing of his prayer here? Starting in verse 21. He prays for us that the body of Christ be one. And what does oneness look like as he defines it here? He said we should be in unity to the same degree that Jesus and his Father are one. That is the degree of our unity that we should have as a body. That's the standard. The perfect unity of the Trinity is our model of how we are to love and care for one another. That is the example that Jesus gives, that we should all walk in oneness to the same degree as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then the second half of that verse, Jesus now prays that they, again, that's all of us, we are the they in this passage, that they may be in us, he says, the triune fellowship, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Jesus' greatest longing here is that we, again, meaning us, together as, not individual, together, that we would be in deep fellowship with the Father and the Son. Remember, this is God's intention in creating us, that he would share his life with us. That we would be in fellowship, not just me and God, one-on-one, but us together as a body, that all of us together would meet together and journey together as a body towards God. Now, I have to say that I think this is one of the greatest weaknesses in Western Christianity, to be honest. Because so many Christians today, we've individualized our relationship with God to, to such an extent that so many Christians don't even feel they need a body or a community to journey with, right? We've just individualized my personal salvation to such a degree that all of this just seems superfluous for so many Christians. Now, even before COVID, this was a kind of a big deal and it was growing and it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger of people feeling that a church community is just not worth their time. And COVID just accelerated this. I mean, the statistics are crazy that shows the amount of people that even Christians that no longer even go to a body of a church of any kind, right? People thinking, you know, I like Jesus. I just don't like his people so much. Or or why would I go out to hang out, go out of my way to hang out with people I don't even want to spend time with anyways when I can just stay home and catch a podcast on my way to work? Or stream a service in my my pajamas while I'm eating my Frosted Flakes. I mean, why take the energy to actually go out and join in with the body when a lot of them I don't actually like? I mean, there's many who feel that listening to a podcast on the way to work is is just as good as joining a body of believers and worshiping together and journeying together and building one another up. And many that don't recognize that they're missing out on one of the most foundational realities of being a follower of Jesus, that we are meant to be a body together, not in isolation. God has called us to be one as a body. And I'm grateful that we can stream our services, I'll be honest, especially for those like my father who can't be here with us because of health issues and so many others who are sick and can't do it. Or for those who are being very cautious because of COVID, I get it, I understand, and they're avoiding restaurants and other public places, I get it. Or for those who are sick or out of town or just those that have watched us online. Just this morning I heard of a family that's here that just watched us online for a few times and is able to come, and I'm grateful for all of that. But we can never confuse consuming content with being part of the body of Christ. Right? Jesus never intended it that way. He called for us to journey together with people, arm in arm, along with side one another. And in the ascension, Jesus joins us together, his body, and places us in the midst of his fellowship. And again, not just me, James, but all of us are united together in the ascension with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And his longing is that we walk together and love one another, and we experience his love for us and for all everyone else. But it doesn't stop there in this passage. What does Jesus say the result of this oneness that we are intended to have with God and one another? What will this result in, it says there. It says the world will believe that Jesus 
actually is sent from the Father. Jesus says the greatest testimony we can give the world of the reality of Jesus and his love for the world, the greatest testimony we can give, what does he say it is? It's the way in which we love one another and the way in which we walk in unity with him. That is our greatest testimony to the world. Jesus often calls us his witnesses. Why does he use that word? Being people should see, they will witness the way in which we love one another, especially in the midst of differences, and the way that we walk in unity with one another, and they will witness that, they will see that, Jesus says, and that will draw them and recognize how much the Father actually loves them. So verse 22, then he goes on to say that he's given up his, us his glory. Why? So that we may be one just like the Trinity is one. Again, he's drawing, Jesus connects, that his greatest longing rests on the reality that we would be loving one another to the same degree in which the Trinity loves one another. And again, I'll be honest, we can't do that very well apart from the body. Thumbs don't work very well when they're removed from the body. Appendages don't work very well that way. This kind of love requires self-sacrifice. It requires getting our hands dirty. It requires laying down our rights and usually requires putting on pants right? And pursuing others who love and, and, and look a whole lot different than ourselves, right? As we pursue them, as we do body ministry together. In verse 23, Jesus repeats himself again. He says, I am in them. And the emphasis, notice here, is plural. It's not singular. It's not I am in you. I am in them. He is in us as a body. He is, he is uh, this is what we've been talking about again, this whole series that we are united now in Christ and he dwells in us through his spirit as a body. And he says, we are in him. I mean, it's just crazy as you just go back through this again and again. He says, we are, he is, we are in him to the same degree that the father is in him, right? This is Jesus's words again. He says that we, as a body, are in Christ to the same degree that the Father is in Christ. The same thing. That Trinitarian fellowship, Jesus says, now we live, not future, we currently, that this is our reality now that we should be experiencing as a body. And then look at his next prayer. Jesus' greatest longing is that in our love and our unity with one another, we would be so beautiful that the world won't be able to deny Jesus any longer. The world will know beyond a shadow of a doubt how deep the Father's love for them is, that the same depth of the love the Father has for Jesus is the same love he has for, for, for the world. And this message, it says, the number one way this goes out is the way in which we love one another, the way in which we walk in unity with one another in the midst of our differences. So this prayer of John, in my opinion, perfectly summarizes the whole point of the Incarnation. It's right at the end of his time, and it's kind of summarized the whole point of this whole series of why we're doing this, of why Jesus took our humanity, and why in the ascension he remains fully human. And to summarize this passage, it's threefold. There's three primary things that Jesus says here. One, for us together as his body, not just as individuals, to be an in intimate fellowship with his Father through the Holy Spirit, right? That he wants us to live in the joy and wonder of an abundant life in him. That's number one. That's what he's calling us to, to live out this intimate, beautiful relationship with God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Two, the second main point here is for us to live out this beautiful unity of self-sacrificially loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Central to Jesus' longing, the incarnation, is that we would love one another the same way that he's loved us of not allowing anything to divide us, but deeply pursuing one another and building one another up 
of journeying in close community with our brothers and sisters. And then three, what we see, that the fruit of the depth of our love for one another and for the Father and the Son will be our greatest testimony to the world. Greater than any other work we can do. The depth of our love for one another is what will cause people to recognize how much God loves them. The world will see how well we care for one another in the midst of our differences. How will we honor one another, build one another up, and love one another. And it's Jesus' longing again is that we do that so well that the world will see that and be drawn to him. This is what Jesus has come for, to reconcile the world back to himself. This is his plan on how to make it happen. It's through us. The ascended Jesus is actively with us right now through his Holy Spirit. And what is he doing right now? He's empowering us to walk intimately with him and to supernaturally love one another. Right now he is here with us, empowering us through his spirit to do this. And he's empowering us to continue his work here on earth that he did while he was here until he returns. Days before he ascended, just days before, Jesus says this to his disciples. John chapter 20, verse 21, he says, Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So go out and do the things that I've been doing. And how? Here's my Holy Spirit to experience my life going forward. And the Holy Spirit enables us to go and do this ministry. Or as he says a few chapters earlier in John 14, after he tells, or when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than thee. Why? Because I'm going to be with my Father. And the whole point is, and the Holy Spirit will be with you, enabling you and empowering you to live the life that I have to continue on in my ministry. So Jesus doesn't just save us so we can have a comfortable life and be grateful that we're not going to hell. That's not why he does it. But he's calling us together to continue his work here on earth of seeing the world come to know him. But we're not doing it alone. We are doing it together as a body and we are in Christ. He is with us through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, joining with us. Jesus is the ascended Lord. And we are now united with him in the very presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he's empowering us through his Holy Spirit right now at this moment to live and love like him. This is what we are called for. To enjoy him. To love him. To enjoy and love. Not always enjoy. Sometimes it's more more endurance. But to love one another. Right? Hopefully a lot of enjoying as well. But there's going to be a lot of endurance in there too. Some people have to spend time with me. That takes some endurance. And he's called for us to do this because we are in him and we have his spirit to empower us. This is our admonition. This is Christ's call on our lives. This is what the ascension makes possible. And it's what the spirit makes possible by empowering us in this. That we together walk in this incredible fellowship. Now, for so many Christians, Christianity has often become more about believing the right things and trying to avoid sin, obey the rules. And it's no wonder today that so many of our young people are just fleeing away from religion and Christianity because they just see a bunch of rule following, they see this boring idea, and they miss out on the reality for so many people of what Jesus actually called us to. If Jesus, all Jesus cared about was getting a bunch of miserable people into heaven, he could have made his life a whole lot easier and done things very different. But his goal wasn't just getting miserable people into heaven. His goal was uniting us back into relationship with himself. 
this life that he's created us for. And I, I know I've covered a lot of ground today, but I want to finish and close with two specific application points for us as we wrap this up. Number one, are we actively walking in an intimate fellowship with God? I mean, that, that's just a basic question. But, or is it more of a transactional relationship that we have? God has called us as his children, not as his employees. He, he is not a doctrine to be believed, but a person to be in fellowship with us. And he's united us with him. Jesus' ascension makes it possible for us to experience a life that Christ created us for. But we must take time to be with him. And that's more than just a quiet time or reading our Bible sometimes, but daily, all throughout the day, inviting him into our life, of journeying with him throughout the day, and of recognizing the reality of his presence with us at all times. Just like Jesus lived his life. we got to follow his example. You know, a massive percentage of the church today does not experience the reality of what Christ offers us in a deep fellowship with him. We've been given the greatest gift imaginable. And that's not just eternal life, as Jesus himself would say. Greater than eternal life, the gift we've been given, as Jesus would say, is him. We've been given God. and we know He's not just a means to an end. He is the end, the gift that we've been given. And so often we take this unimaginable gift and we leave it unwrapped and we just put it up on a shelf and we're just so grateful for this gift that God has given us. And then we just go about our lives every once in a while acknowledging and saying, well, thanks for giving me that gift. But God's saying, unwrap it. Live with it. The reality is I've called you for an abundant life here and now. My fellowship is available here and now. It's the greatest gift imaginable that right now we can experience Emmanuel, God with us here and now. And that's the vertical aspect. And that's amazing. And for some of us, we need to go back to the Lord and say, Father, I want more of you. And we need to go and, and follow the example of Jesus. We'll be talking a lot more about that in the future. And that's the vertical. But the second point is the horizontal aspect of application. Are we actively working with Jesus in building up his body? Are we actively engaging in the messiness of loving one another even when it's hard and even when it's inconvenient? Are we going beyond the, hey, hi, how are yous, right? And, and hearing one another's stories and building one another up. Are we leaning into the Holy Spirit to speak words of life through us to one another? And some of us, I recognize, are in rough spaces right now, and we don't have the capacity right now, and God understands that. But for most of us, don't rush in or out of this building when you come in, or out of your home group when you go there, whatever it is. But linger and ask the Holy Spirit to, to, to guide you to people in our midst that you can pour into, that you can love on. Hear their story and ask Him how you can build them up and encourage them. Let us be the body. And I want to say this, it's really hard to do it from a distance. Again, if for health reasons you can't be present with us, especially for those listening online, I fully understand it. But if you're a person that's just fallen into a new habit in this last 18 months of doing online church because it's more convenient, and yet you're still out every week in restaurants and, and all the public places, I, I want to gently challenge you. And I would beg of you to get your hands dirty again. Come journey with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus did not call us to a life of convenience and serving of our own self-interest, but he called us sacrificially to love one another. And if you're actively journeying with, and if you're, sorry, if you're not actively journeying with a, a small body of believers right now, where they know you and you're known by them and you get to know them, I challenge you, get involved in a small group so that we get to journey arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, and love on people, and face conflict with people, and pray with people, and struggle with people, and serve with people the way God has called us to. Because he's called us to experience the love with him and experience that love with one another. And all of this we get to do because the risen Jesus, one of us, has brought us back 
into fellowship with him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord. There's no greater message than to know that what you created us for, to walk in intimacy with you, to be known by you and to know you, that all throughout history, up until the time that your spirit falls, Lord, that was not possible for the most majority of all history, Lord, but you have brought us, and this is, it says, that the prophets used to speak that they dreamed of this day that we could have, what we now have, and yet so many of us just kind of forsake it. We, we leave it as a gift on the table, Lord. But you've invited us to be in fellowship with you. You've put us in your presence, Lord, because we are in Christ with you right now. And so, Jesus, I just pray that you move in our hearts, Lord, for those of us that have felt dry and weary. Oh, Father, may you draw us deeper into your presence. Jesus, may we follow your example and and, and spend time with you and, and prioritize time with you, Lord Jesus, to experience more of who you are. And may we gather together with our brothers and sisters and together journey together deeper into the heart of your presence, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that above all, you want us to be with you. And you want those who do not know you to know you, Lord Jesus. And thanks that you've called us to be part of that journey. Thank you, Father. Amen.